We're currently spending our political and our financial and intellectual capital to dig up stuff that we know that we can never burn or it will burn us. I mean, here are all these like CEOs and program directors of big organizations and within minutes, people were sobbing. Who cares wins, phrase or meaningful question? A podcast for the deep thinker, the curious intellect, and for those who care deeply about the planet. Also, sometimes referred to as Who Cares Who Wins. Hello and welcome back to Who Cares Wins. I'm delighted to share with you a few bonus episodes coming off the back of COP27 in Egypt's Sharm el-Sheikh, the International Climate Convention. I was there with the United Nations Economic Commission of Europe, speaking at different panels about transparency and supply chains and how we can try and reform our economic system to not destroy the planet in the process of running the economy. I also got to spend time with some incredible activists, indigenous activists, youth activists, organisers. And similar to my experience of COP26, it feels like there are almost kind of two parallel realities running at the COPs. Kind of the official COP, which can be disappointing to say the least, and we'll get more into detail on that in this episode, but also a kind of a parallel COP, which is all the organisers and activists who are coming together to try and influence the negotiations. Incredible people who are really dedicating their lives to climate action and climate justice. And one such person I've invited on to this episode today... Her name is Zipporah Berman. She gave an extraordinary talk at the TED Talks that were organised in the run-up to COP26 about the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, which she helped launch into the world. And I'd recommend checking out her TED Talk. It's had over 2 million views already and has seen a huge movement build around it, including several countries signing up to it, as we'll discuss in this episode. Zipporah's background is really interesting. She's an activist, a campaigner, a writer. She was well known for organising logging blockades in British Columbia in the early 90s, which were some of the largest acts of civil disobedience in Canadian history and successfully protected old growth timber in a temperate rainforest, which was due to be clear cut for paper. Her presence in COP was powerful. I left COP feeling very disillusioned about the outcome in terms of fossil fuels. And so I reached out to Zipporah to talk me through the work she's doing and her reflections on the COP process. <laughs> Where are you? Where's home? Are you home? Yeah, this is home. Oh, Lily, this is my house. Nice, beautiful, very wooden. Do you see the tree in the center of it? Oh my gosh, I do. Yeah, beautiful. What's it's the, a um, what's the story it's with a the tree? Four foot uh, western red cedar tree that washed up on the beach on Cortez Island, and a friend of mine who's an artist found it, and he and my husband sculpted it, and then and then installed it in the center of the house because the, there's a light well that goes all the way up the, to the top of the house because the house is passive solar. And so the tree goes up the center. It always Aww. reminds me of Cortez. Yeah. That's so nice. And where are you? Where is your house? 
Which part Vancouver. of the world? Okay, cool. And how does it feel to be back home post-COP, post-Egypt? You know, in some ways it actually feels a little surreal. I was making dinner last night and I was like, did that all really happen? <laughs> you know, when you get back into your normal and you just, and you're like, wow, that feels really surreal. And, and honestly, just really exhausted. It was 12, 14 hour days, almost every day for two weeks. So exhausted. Yeah. I mean, I feel recovered, but it, I was like wiped the week I got back. I got a bit sick actually and just needed to sleep a lot. It's it's very yeah. intense being there. It's a lot of energy and yeah. it's pretty nonstop. And what were your takeaways? How do you feel both about your experience of being there and the achievements and the outcome? That's a very vague question, but I just love to dive into your thoughts reflecting on COP27. Sure. You know, in some ways it was a success for the issues of fossil fuels and also for loss and damage. So let me pull that apart for a minute. There have been 27 COPs where we have not even talked about uh, oil, gas, or coal, even though those are the three things contributing the most to climate change. And you know, the fossil fuel industry has been successful in trying to make these products and the need to wind them down just invisible. Everyone talks about emissions and complicated targets, but we never talk about fossil fuels. And I think COP26 in Glasgow was the first time that we started to see a real discussion and a debate. And there was an agreement to put in the cover text, the need to wind down unabated coal. So still weak because it's just coal and it's unabated, which is really just a word that provides a loophole to the fossil fuel industry to continue to grow production while they promise to abate with technologies that are really not available today at scale. But what I think is a big step forward is the fact that we now have a recognition of the huge, in some ways, gaping wound or gap that is in our international agreements that we are we don't have even a recognition of the words oil or gas in the text. But more importantly, we don't have agreements on how countries are going to cooperate to stop the expansion of oil, gas, and coal, and how we're going to cooperate to decide who gets to produce and how much, given that we know we have a limited carbon budget today. And so seeing that narrative emerge because of the hard work of people around the world, especially I think people on the front lines who have been calling for you know keeping it in the ground and opposing fossil fuel projects for decades. But now I think also because of the fossil fuel treaty campaign, we've lifted up this issue and it's become an issue of debate. And that's important. Probably even, of course, more important is the fact that for the first time uh, at a conference of the parties, we have a commitment to a new fund for loss and damage. So this is really critical because the most vulnerable countries, the countries who are experiencing the worst impacts of climate change today are, are not the countries responsible for the pollution that's trapped in our atmosphere right now. and. There have been vague commitments to support vulnerable nations as they deal with the worst impacts of climate change, but this is the first time that we have a commitment in the text to a new fund and steps forward. So so I, I think both of those are steps forward. Mm. I'll tell you now my thoughts, and I'll tell you in part because I'd love you to critique them and pull them apart because yours sound much more optimistic than mine. <laughs> On my takeaway with it, I felt very depressed afterwards when I, I read the kind of 
headlines and out, main outcomes of the decision. In a way, because of the confluence of the two things you just said, the fact that there was this achievement of progress made on loss and damage is, of course, extraordinary. I know many of the people who've been working towards that for many, many years. And, and it, I don't want to in any way dampen the kind of enthusiasm uh, around that and the celebration of that. But it just seemed extraordinary to me that there would be a legal recognition of the need for covering loss and damage, i.e. the costs that are already being incurred today because of the climate crisis and mm-hmm. the climate injustice around that. And yet at the same time, at the exact same time, a kind of refusal, obstification of a commitment to stop the crisis in very clear terms. So to actually phase out oil, gold and gas, not just unabated, not phased down, not not mentioned. And the combination of those two factors I found really disturbing, like this extraordinary mm-hmm. kind of cognitive dissonance. It made me think of, you know, imagine if we were paying reparations for slavery at the same time as continuing the slave trade. You know, it just felt mm-hmm. like these two opposing forces that didn't make sense. And I almost was worried that is there a part of this whereby, I don't know if you've seen George Mumbio compares carbon offsetting to indulgences to the medieval practice of paying off for your sins, indulgences, that sometimes Mm. carbon offsets have been used as a way to justify business as usual. And I sort of woke up with this horrible feeling of like, oh, is, is loss and damage becoming a version of that whereby some actors and some states and some industries can sort of like try and quieten the activists by paying towards loss and damage. And that sort of allows them off the hook a bit in terms of making more radical action on fossil fuels. So, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that. Yeah, you know, of course you're right. And I, and I won't, and I can't lie and say I didn't also the day after wake up with this massive feeling of dread on my chest. It is in so many ways so absurd that here we are at the 27th meeting and we can't even name the three products that are responsible for the problem. I was reading an interview by Katie White from uh, WWF and I thought she put it brilliantly. She said, moving forward on loss and damage with while still refusing to acknowledge the need to phase out fossil fuels is just a down payment on disaster. Uh, that was an, uh, a really incredible term because the bottom line is more fossil fuels means more loss and damage. And so in in that way, you're right. And given the emergency that we are experiencing, I mean, a third of Pakistan this year underwater, the reports from Oxfam saying that one person dies every 36 seconds right now in the Horn of Africa as a result of climate-induced drought. We're living the climate emergency all over the planet right now one would have hoped that our elected decision makers could you know could do more at this critical moment in history to address the crisis so in that way you're right and um you know i have a i guess a perspective from 15 cops now i i've been going to the conference of parties and working on climate change now for about 15 years and working on environmental advocacy for 30 years and if there's one thing that i've learned it's that social change isn't linear it doesn't happen because of, you know, a series of stepwise moments. If you look at other social movements throughout history, it it happens at tipping point moments, almost like the concentration of crystals, you know, when you get that moment where it, it bursts out. And it definitely feels to me that 
we are living one of those tipping point moments that just the fact that we're now having this debate about fossil fuels, the fact that so many uh, individuals and organizations and now even countries are considering this huge, bold new idea of a fossil fuel treaty to constrain the expansion of fossil fuels all over the planet. And, you know, that really makes me believe that we're on the cusp of something new. I think for me, previous COPs were a lot more depressing because it just felt like this constant more of the same. You know, let's double down on the things we're doing, even though we know they're not working. And and when we first proposed the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty two years ago, people said we were crazy. And the responses were everything from, we don't need it, we have the Paris Agreement, even though the Paris Agreement doesn't have mechanisms to constrain the production of fossil fuels, only the emissions, and to outright, you know, hostility about, you know, that it was, it would take too long for a new treaty, that was a crazy idea, we don't have time for this. But now there is a real recognition, I think, that we don't have time for more of the same. And that for 30 years, we've had a group think going on that allowed us to think that we could just look at one half of the problem. How do we reduce demand and emissions, but not constrain the production of the problem that's locking in more and more and more emissions? I think for several years, it felt like we were having to fight that fight to just get people to acknowledge the science Mm -hmm. and that we were going to have to reduce the production of fossil fuels as well. And this year, something incredible happened on the second day of COP. The high-level expert group for the UN Secretary General on net zero released a report saying, if you are saying you are uh, on the pathway to net zero and you are expanding fossil fuels, any new projects of oil, gas, and coal, and you don't have a plan to wind down existing assets, then it's just greenwash. That cannot be defined as net zero. Mm. And having Catherine McKenna, the uh, chair and advisor of that high-level working group for the UN Secretary General, and then the UN Secretary General himself say this on the second day of COP to acknowledge the science was very clear that we can't expand production and we have to have an absolute wind down of production and emissions, that we shouldn't be using offsets in order to meet our mitigation or pollution reduction targets. It moved this debate about keeping it in the ground from the front lines of activists and indigenous leaders and the outside game to the inside game. And I think that's significant. For anybody listening who's not familiar yet with with the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, can you talk through the idea and can you explain the concept? Yeah, in in some ways the concept is borrowed from nuclear non-proliferation because, you know, in the, you know, when I grew up, I'm old enough to say when I grew up, in the in the 70s, uh, an important shift happened where we recognized, the world recognized that we were on the pathway to, we already had above ground and, and developed enough nuclear weapons on the planet to blow the planet up six times over. And yet we were stockpiling more and more. And the concept then was if you have more weapons, you have more security. During the debate around nuclear non-proliferation, and there was a result of the proposal of the treaty, that norm shifted where people started recognizing that stockpiling nuclear weapons actually was the threat to our security. 
And the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty was created with three pillars. Stop the stockpiling, manage a wind down, cooperate to have a more secure future. And so several years ago, a group of us academics and lawyers and diplomats started looking at the concept and saying, well, this is the exact situation we're in, except today our weapons of mass destruction are fossil fuels, not just because they're the primary cause of the climate emergency, but because today one in five people on the planet die premature deaths just from the air pollution from fossil fuels. So fossil fuels are today one of the greatest threats, yet we are on track today to produce 110% more oil, gas, and coal than we can ever burn under a 1.5 degree scenario. In fact, even if we phased out coal overnight, we already have enough fossil fuels under production and construction to take us well past two degrees if it's burned. So the logic of the fossil fuel treaty is based on the, the fact that we're currently spending our political and our financial and intellectual capital to dig up stuff that we know that we can never burn or it will burn us. And yet many countries are continuing to expand projects, the UK, Canada, Norway, the US, Australia, a lot of these wealthy countries planning on doing new drilling or new fracking because they all wanna be the last barrel sold. They know that they're going to have to stop, but no one wants to be first because of competitiveness issues. And therefore we need new international agreements to stop the expansion and production of fossil fuels that's locking us into future emissions. Not to replace the Paris Agreement, but to complement the Paris Agreement. Because the Paris Agreement has targets, it has emissions reductions plans and commitments, but it has really almost no mechanisms to constrain the production of fossil fuels. So two years ago, we went live with the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Initiative, which is a, an initiative to call for a treaty in the hopes that we could build support around the idea and start the conversation with the United Nations and, and nation states. And, and in, in, it, in some ways, it's like it, it's been like being shot out of a cannon. We really didn't expect. I mean, I guess we hoped for the response that we've had so far, but we didn't expect it to be so quick. So we now have over 3,000 academics and scientists who are supporting the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. We have 101 Nobel laureates, including the Dalai Lama, over 1,000 faith organizations representing 1.2 billion people, including a cardinal from the Vatican. The support has been fast and big. This year, even the World Health Organization, the WHO, endorsed the call for the Fossil Fuel Treaty. And probably most importantly, we now have two countries, Vanuatu, who proposed the treaty on the floor of the UN General Assembly, and then Tuvalu, uh, who called for the treaty on the floor of COP27. Historically, when you look at landmines or nuclear weapons treaties, chemical weapons bans, when a country proposes a new treaty on the floor of the UN, things start to move very quickly and you can get a treaty within two to three years. And things moved very quickly at COP27. Tuvalu hosted several meetings, multilateral and bilateral discussions with other countries, one of which they invited me to, to present the treaty to two nation states. And there were over 20 countries in that room, high, a high level meeting with ministers. And, and 
you know, really discussing the potential of a fossil fuel treaty, what kind of new global governance and mechanisms could exist under a treaty, and many of whom I believe will endorse the treaty within the next year. And and so it's a, a live new proposal that now has both campaign groups and civil society groups all over the world campaigning on it, calling on their city councils to endorse or meeting with their governments. We now have 70 cities around the world who have endorsed the treaty, including Calcutta, the largest city in India, most recently Belém in Brazil. And now we've started discussions with lawyers and experts from around the world on, on what would be the principles and the mechanisms that are necessary under a treaty for countries to really manage fossil fuel production and bring it in line with the goals of the Paris Agreement. Amazing, amazing work. Well done. And I feel so proud to have watched a bit of that journey because I saw you and you did your talk at TED Countdown a year ago, just before COP26. And I mean, it was the one talk I have to say that everybody, you know, it came to me multiple times. Have you seen this talk? Have you seen this talk? It was spreading like wildfire. So congratulations. <laughs> I think it's the simplicity of the idea in a way that makes it so compelling because it's just like, duh, <laughs> That's, that makes sense. Do you think that for some of the countries that have been some of the wealthy countries, for example, you just mentioned previ- previously that are still kind of driving the fossil fuel economy, that this could be more compelling for them because it removes the kind of the competitive aspect of of them? You know, they're in there in a crossroads where you take a country like the UK, for example, that has made a net zero goal, that, you know, recognises the climate emergency, that wants to make the transition but you have the energy crisis and the kind of competitive landscape you're talking about. And you know, we still see politicians pushing towards fossil fuels in spite of all those other commitments. Do you think the treaty would appeal to those economies that right now are, are blocking action or sometimes blocking action on phasing out fossil fuels? Or do you think there are many countries that need to kind of be worked around or rallied in order to get agreement? Well, if you go back to the example of the nuclear nonproliferation, what was really in- interesting is when that social norm started to flip from nuclear weapons being what protects us to being what threatens us, it started to become unacceptable for countries to be stockpiling nuclear weapons. So the US, Russia, China, they never signed, but they stopped stockpiling. Mm. And, and I think today, if you think about, you know, the UK, Canada, Norway, these are countries that say they're climate leaders that have put in place significant policies at a domestic level on climate change and to reduce emissions. But, you know, when you talk to them, they all say the same thing, which is, oh, countries are just responsible for reducing emissions and emissions targets. We're not responsible for constraining production because that's been the mindset for 30 years. But that's not working. Mm -hmm. Emissions continue to go up. And they recognize that. And the more that you have other countries joining as first movers for the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, and also the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, BOGO, which is now, I think, somewhere between 15 and 19 countries and subnationals that have joined Denmark to say, we're not going to expand oil and gas, because we know it's not in line with the science. So the two initiatives are starting to really create that social norm where it's it's unacceptable. You're not a climate leader if you're continuing to expand fossil fuels. That will influence countries like Canada and, and the UK and other producing countries. 
And as more countries commit to stop expansion and start exploring these opportunities, that will also have an interplay with the markets. It'll provide more certainty for investment in renewable energy because renewable energy is cheaper now than fossil fuels. But it doesn't have a leg up, especially because those wealthy countries are subsidizing the continued expansion of fossil fuels. And as that becomes you know, less acceptable, as we have more countries committing to stop expansion, and as demand falls for oil and gas, which it is starting to fall because so many countries have committed to ban the fossil fuel car, all of those things will interplay to have an impact on what those wealthy countries do. But we don't expect those big wealthy countries who are now expanding fossil fuel production to join up to the fossil fuel treaty early. Um, mm -hmm. But if we can get a core group of countries who are calling for this and starting to design uh, the actual text of a fossil fuel treaty, create negotiations, it will provide uh, momentum and pressure uh, those countries to stop expansion. You made a good point there of the, the fact that renewables are cheaper but are disadvantaged largely by subsidies. Where did we get to on the conversation around subsidies at COP27? It really has been one of the most intransigent issues for now well over a decade. You know, the G20 committed to eliminate fossil fuels subsidies years ago. Yet just this year, the OECD and the IEA, two kind of think tanks on energy, International Energy Agency, did a study and found that in many of the countries, fossil fuel subsidies have increased up to 51% in the last year. The, the IMF has a study that shows that we're now, countries are giving the fossil fuel industry $11 million a minute in fossil fuel subsidies, $11 million a minute. So we're giving taxpayers dollars to the polluters so that they can pollute more and keep these projects alive, even though renewables are cheaper. It's ridiculous. Like, but what's, again, what's the logic? Because they all want to keep their projects alive. So if when I talk to you know my government in Canada, what they say is, well, look, we know the world's going to use less oil and gas, but it might as well be ours. So we have to support our industry so that they can continue to be the ones that survive, even though demand is, is down and, and fossil fuels are more expensive. I don't think we've made a lot of progress on fossil fuel subsidies. However, the new proposals like Mia Motley from Barbados, her proposal for the global windfall tax and the national campaigns we're seeing for a windfall tax, I think are gaining momentum and waking people up to the fact that these companies are making literally record profits, billions and billions of dollars, yet the price of energy is going up for the average person and governments are not taxing them significantly, especially considering the damage they're doing to our environment and the legacy that they're leaving behind in these oil and gas projects. So I think as that awareness increases and those proposals take hold, we're going, we, we see that the fossil fuel industry has kind of less social license. So we're picking away at it. More and more people are waking up to the idea of, I don't want my tax dollars going here. Why aren't we putting our tax dollars into actual solutions that are cleaner and safer, that reduce costs for families instead of handing them to the big companies that are making profits? And so we need to continue to chip away at that. Uh, we need the wealthy countries to act first and to take away those subsidies uh, in, in, in order to fast track the kind of clean energy revolution. But it, it has been 
pretty depressing how intransigent it is and how much all these wealthy countries want to keep subsidizing their own companies, the companies within their borders so that they can have a competitive edge on disaster. <laughs> yeah, Mia Motley's intervention calling for, it was a 10%, wasn't it, on profits, windfall tax that should go to loss and damage funding, I thought was, again, just such a simple, beautiful, powerful idea that resonated. Well, and she said, if you tax 10%, just the top 20 companies, then already this year in nine months, that would have been $37 billion. Yeah. It's a huge amount of money that they're making in profits. Yeah. And the only reason I can think of why we wouldn't just remove the subsidies and put them into clean energy transition would be the fears that the costs, I mean, there may be other reasons, but one of the obvious ones is the fear that the consumer's cost of energy would spike and that many people couldn't afford that and the political consequences of that. But given that renewables are cheaper and have more longevity, you would think that there would be a very easy way to solve for that if you were to invest those subsidies into clean energy that was cheaper, you know, and that provided cheaper energy to the population. And then so you're left wondering, well, why are we still stuck in these subsidies? And is it the influence of lobbying? You know, is it as kind of seedy and simplistic in a way as that? As we both know, the second biggest delegation at COP27 was the fossil fuel lobby. What do you think of the influence of lobbyists in this equation? There is no question in my mind that the influence and the power of the fossil fuel industry is what is holding climate policy hostage. The reason we are not moving forward quicker and definitely the reason we continue to have these subsidies. I think it is one of the worst trends that we're seeing of more and more oil and gas companies and coal companies actually at the negotiations and I'm very worried looking forward in the COP28, you know, whether that trend's going to expand again. Look, there are good people in the industry. There are good, smart people and they're caught in a very bad system. And governments need to work with those companies to wind down the industry, to clean up the industry. But having them at climate negotiations, having them at the table to design the rules that, that should be designing their own demise is absurd because these companies are never going to do that. They're going to continue to try and expand. You know, I think of this as the last gasp of the fossil fuel industry. Each company individually is going to keep trying to expand because that's how they make their money. So I think it is very dangerous to have them at the table in these negotiations. They are not there to represent the public good. And that's what governments should be doing. And they shouldn't be on country delegations and they shouldn't be at the climate negotiations. I don't think a lot of people realize the extent of the profits of this industry and that there is no connection to the rise in prices. As they make more money or if they make less money, it doesn't mean that it's going to have a direct impact on prices. So today, you know, high energy prices are one of the leading factors driving inflation. They're embedded into every facet of our daily life. I mean, most obviously at the gas pump, but but also in delivery costs that affect everything from produce to anything. But meanwhile, last year, ExxonMobil quadrupled their figures at $17.85 billion. Shell beat its previous quarterly profit with $11.5 billion. And then there was a new analysis last year that calculated 2.8 billion a day in pure profit for the oil and gas industry every day for the last 50 years. 
Oh my gosh. So that's the extent of it. And meanwhile, you're seeing these profits, but energy costs are continuing to go up. They're making the profit on the backs of average citizens. On the influence of the industry, in the last couple of years, there's been a significant amount of data that actually shows the influence of the industry. So these companies are doing massive ad campaigns about how they're part of the solution. They agree with climate change, they're green, they're investing in renewable energy. And in fact, there was one study that showed that 80% of their ad buy is about climate change and renewable energy and solutions, but 2% of their capex. So 98% of their investments of the top companies are going into more fossil fuels, not into solutions or renewable energy. And there's also been studies looking at the fact that they're spending millions of dollars in lobbying to weaken climate legislation. And that's the really great work of an organization called Influence Map, which is really tracking the influence of the oil and gas and, and coal industry on climate negotiations. And so I think we now have the data to show that these companies are not there to help us address climate change, as many governments claim. They're there to try and get more money, uh, taxpayers' money, for their so-called solutions like carbon capture and storage, you know, to invest in technologies that they say are going to mean that they can increase production while decreasing emissions because the technologies will reduce emissions. But they've been saying that for decades, and those technologies are simply not working at scale. And it is cheaper and safer to just invest in the solutions like renewable energy and electrification of transport, which do work. I find it baffling, to be honest, that the CEOs of the fossil fuel companies are not going like full, full belt into transitioning because it's so clear that we have to transition, that they could be well positioned to be the leaders of a transition. I know some of them are investing in renewables, but as you say, it's it's small fry. Yeah, and it's surprising to me that it would seem quite obvious if you knew you had a, a kind of fossil of a company that is destined to be relegated, why you wouldn't pump the billions of profits into transitioning. But anyway, I'm not the CEO of Shell. No, you know, it is a really important point. I was really flummoxed by that as well. And I actually spent four years meeting with the CEOs of the top oil and gas companies to try and understand, because I kept thinking, these are brilliant people who, you Mm -hmm. know, some of them self-made billionaires, like they run these massive companies. They must understand climate, like they must actually understand climate science. And it was totally fascinating. What I found out is they do. They understand what's happening on climate change, but they definitely all believe that they should be the last barrel sold, that they have a right to compete, and the world's still using oil, so it might as well be mine. And they're not structured to become renewable energy companies. The fascinating thing about the solutions today is that they reallocate power in every sense of the word power, because renewable energy is distributed. It can be owned by individuals or by communities in terms of the infrastructure. And then no one controls the inputs. No one controls how much sun you can get or how much wind you can get. And these big fossil fuel companies, the incumbents are designed to own the inputs, to control the energy system and to continue to profit from it. So there are examples of companies transitioning. Orsted in Denmark was an oil and gas company. It's now a renewable energy company. They successfully diversified and completed the transition. They're really one of the only examples right now on the planet. And that while the big oil companies have been saying they're going to do it for years, I mean, BP in the UK, they announced their Beyond Petroleum program, what, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? 
Yet if you look at their books, they're not beyond petroleum. And I think it's in part because just not structured to become renewable energy companies. And they also know that they can still make billions of dollars next year if they hold on to and continue to expand fossil fuels. And so they're holding on. It's addictive. Yeah, there's billions. I love the fact that renewables are decentralized. That's one of the things that it inspires me about them if you think of how many kind of geopolitical con- conflicts and wars have been fought over the control of energy and when i looked at nuclear it's one of the reasons i, s- I can't help but resist kind of nuclear being advocated as a clean energy solution is that it doesn't solve for that problem i mean there are other issues too but it doesn't solve for the centralization of power through energy that mm-hmm. we have today how do you feel that the energy crisis this year has impacted on your work do you feel like it's been problematic because it's made people for example the uk suddenly start talking about pumping every last drop of the north sea oil and gas Mm -hmm. um but at the same time it has drawn attention to the fact that we need energy sovereignty and that renewables are cheaper so i'm curious to see what impact on the energy crisis you felt i would agree with you it's both you know the fossil fuel industry didn't even wait for the first bombs to fall on the Ukraine before they were out there arguing that this war is the reason that we need to invest in more fossil fuels. And and they used every advantage and fear-mongering about the control of energy that people could clearly see with Russia's war on Ukraine to say that we need more fossil fuels. But what I found very interesting is about kind of three or four months in, that started to flip in, especially in Europe, where there was the realization that the fossil fuel industry is designed to have choke points that dictators can control and that doubling down on a system that is so obviously can be controlled by dictators that makes countries more vulnerable is not the answer. And we started to see these massive uptakes in heat pumps, in energy efficiency programs. And so while, for example, in Germany, there has been a a shift to allow coal plants that were shuttered to reopen in order to provide heat and energy security this winter. There is also a very public statement from Germany and other countries in the EU that this is temporary. And they simultaneously increased their targets for renewable energy and energy efficiency and doubled down on the the long-term vision of getting off fossil fuels. So I think it in some countries, it will actually work to speed up the transition. However, I think that the fossil fuel industry has been successful in getting a foothold for a number of pieces of new infrastructure and new projects that they wouldn't have gotten without this fear around energy security. Whether or not those projects go forward, though, is another question, because just getting the permits doesn't necessarily mean in this day and age a project will go forward because the markets are actually so soft for oil and gas and new LNG. And these projects cost billions of dollars and you don't recoup billions of dollars in a couple of years. And there's more and more awareness now that it's a false hope that it will provide energy security um, in the short term, given that those huge pieces of infrastructure, the new pipelines, the new LNG plants, they take years to build. And in fact, renewable energy and electrification infrastructure is faster. It's not just cheaper, it's faster. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's safer in the long term. So my biggest fear looking at all of the new projects proposed throughout the continent of Africa is that the fossil fuel industry has been using this moment to provide 
false hope around energy security and a leaving energy poverty in countries in Africa. And I say false hope because the fossil fuel industry has had decades, in fact, over 100 years to provide energy access in, in African countries. And there are still 600 million people that don't have energy access. They don't plan to provide energy access. They want to build big new projects in Africa in order to ship out the energy and ship out the profits. Mm. And that's why so many African civil society groups have come together to launch the campaign Don't Gas Africa, which people should look up online. It's an incredible campaign. They've got a lot of information there about all the new projects proposed throughout Africa and why they won't support energy security and alleviate energy poverty in Africa. I was in Mozambique many years ago and it was extraordinary to me to be in these communities that were incredibly poor, incredibly simple, and yet had solar panels. And so you'd walk past these lines of mud huts that were incredibly, incredibly simple, and there'd be a solar panel balancing on the top. And it just felt this like this very <laughs> beautiful gesture of the ability of communities to leapfrog grid technology, kind of centralized networks, and kind of move towards solar and benefit from solar. You know, the problem is the fossil fuel company companies come with cash in hand for the infrastructure. So it's short-term cash where they say, we'll, we'll build the pipelines, we'll build the refineries, we'll build the infrastructure. And the solutions, renewable energy, diversified electrification, actually requires significant public spend or government spend in order to create that infrastructure. There's not that big initial cash handout. And that, I think, is why so many countries are, I would say, being forced into a position to build fossil fuel infrastructure instead of renewables, even though renewables are cheaper. And that's why underneath the fossil fuel treaty, under the pillar three, which is about a global just transition agreements, we're looking at things like debt forgiveness in order to keep carbon in the ground, or new rules and agreements around multilateral development banks and what they can support and what they will fund. Uh, because if we want to ensure a stable climate in a planetary-wide emergency, we have to support uh, countries in the global south in not building the fossil fuel infrastructure that they're being pushed to build today. People talk a lot about a just transition, but what I don't think a lot of people realize, and I didn't until we started researching this at Fossil Fuel Treaty, is that we, we don't have agreements in place to create a global just transition. And there are so many countries who can't simply do a just transition on their own because outside forces have shaped their economy. I mean, look and at also Malaysia. the whole argument that it's not fair to expect poorer countries to not have the opportunity to develop in the way that richer nations already have, you know, and we've already used carbon budgets to, quote, develop. I mean, question the word develop, but <laughs> what we call develop and that it wouldn't be fair to expect other countries to not do the same and so there's no justice if you don't support poorer countries to arguably actually develop in better ways <laughs> you know really realize that word develop yeah exactly and and i think that's the really the point that the don't gas africa campaign is making is that new fossil fuel infrastructure is not development for africa mm. mohammed adao at, at cop 27 said in a press conference um uh, you can't make africa your gas station and I thought that that was a very visual image. It's not development if what's left behind is the pollution and what's taken out of the country is the energy and the profits. But if countries in the global south are going to be supported to, to ensure 
cleaner and safer development, then if they're going to do that, they're going to need support from the wealthy nations. And the wealthy nations need to act first in, in stopping expansion and winding down quicker. And then there will be more of the carbon budget available for countries in the global south. But right now, we don't agree on any of that. The market decides who gets to produce and, and how much. And we all know there's not a lot of justice embedded in the global marketplace. One marketplace intervention that can be incredibly powerful and successful is carbon pricing. And Zipporah was actually involved in the campaigns to develop carbon pricing in British Columbia, Canada, which um, I wrote about my book as being one of the most successful examples of carbon pricing in the world. So after our conversation, I had a follow up question for her about that. British Columbia was one of the first jurisdictions in the world to put in place an economy-wide carbon tax. And now that, you know, it's over 14 years old, we can really start to see the impact of it. I, I think there are a couple of reasons why it has worked. Uh, one is that they started in a low price. It was $10 a ton and, and with a commitment to ramp it up. And that's the other reason why it works. So by introducing it at a low sticker shock and then agreeing to uh, ramp it up $5 a year, that adds up really quickly and that has had a significant impact. Second of all, they made a commitment to it being revenue neutral. So what does that mean? It means they did a tax shift. So income taxes came down. That means there's more equity and fairness built into the system. And it also means that taxpayers didn't pay more overall. And they put a lot of work into selling that framework. So people understood that it wasn't going to have a negative impact on their budget overall as individuals. And I think, you know, what we've seen is that everyone expected, based on the bad rap that carbon tax gets, that there's going, there was going to be a negative impact on economic growth, for example. Wasn't true. British Columbia's economy outperformed the rest of Canada since 2008 on, on economic growth, and emissions have gone down significantly. But we have to remember that this is not a panacea, because... While the, they put in place the carbon tax, they then continued to approve new fracking, uh, new LNG projects, and now emissions are going up again. So again, that's why you have to regulate uh, supply of fossil fuels and stop the f- expansion of fossil fuels in order to address the supply as well as address the demand through an initiative like a carbon tax. I'm going to move on a little bit to the personal side. So I wanted to ask you about the Joanna Macy workshop you you mentioned to me that you did, Mm. if you're happy to share on that. So we went to the desert for a beautiful trip out into the Sinai Desert in the midst of COP. And I loved what you shared about the workshop you'd done with Joanna Macy and would love to hear more about it. It was quite a long time ago. It was really for me at the kind of beginning of my climate reckoning journey. I would guess that now it's between 15 and 20 years ago. But I had read her book. She wrote a book years ago called Despair and Empowerment in the Nuclear Age. And in, in that book, she talks about how if we're going to get past despair, we need to face it. And that's really actually quite true if you look at the psychology around grief and getting through any form of grief. And there's actually a great network that people can look up called the Good Grief Network that is doing climate anxiety workshops now based on the psychology of grief. Anyway, so I happened to be at this conference in New York, and she was there and she offered a one-day workshop for anyone who wanted to come called Despair and Empowerment in the Climate Era. And so I went, and she had 
us, you know, set up in two circles right from the beginning. And I didn't really know anyone in the room. And it's the inner circle. She said, okay, you are um, people from the future. You're the grandchildren, the children, the grandchildren, the people in the outer circle. And you're just going to stand there and listen. And the people in the outer circle, it's now 2050. And so much of the planet is inhabitable as a result of heat waves and drought and floods. And you have failed to stop runaway climate change. Uh, millions of people are refugees. Millions are dying. And she painted the picture. And then she said, so now you'll have time to turn to this person, your grandchildren or someone from the future, and apologize to them and explain what you tried to do and what you did wrong. And it was profound. I mean, here were all these like CEOs of philanthropic foundations and, you know, program directors of big organizations. And within minutes, people were sobbing and just pouring out their heart to these people they didn't know who were, you know, standing there representing the future. And it was really difficult. And then she would ring a bell and the inner circle would move and you'd be faced with another person and you'd have to do it again. And, and which just, side were you? Were you the outer, the inner? I started on the outer side. I yeah. was apologizing. And then, I don't remember, I mean, it's a long time ago now, I don't remember exactly how she structured the workshop, but I do remember then, at one point, there was a shift, and we were looking at the future, and she described this very utopian future, decentralized energy systems, livable communities, clean air, organic food, the people who are from the future were now talking to their ancestors and they were thanking them and asking them for wisdom. What did you do that worked? How did it work? And thanking them. And there was just this bubbling in the room, like erupted in conversation and everyone's talking and we did this and we did this and I'll thank <laughs> you. And people are hugging each other and laughing. And the feeling of I guess, you know, it's amazing, actually, when I think about it, that this workshop is now, whatever, 10, 15 years ago. And when I talk about it, I can remember the feeling in my body of both. I can remember the devastation, and then I can remember this feeling of joy just erupting and thankfulness. And it was profound for me. What I held on to from it was, you know, was, of course, the sense of urgency, which I have, I think... Even people who have a climate reckoning moment and realize the ser seriousness of our situation can kind of normalize it or turn away from it because it's so easy just to go back to our everyday lives. And I pinpoint that moment for me as the moment where the urgency took root. Mm. Like I'll never forget that moment. And I live every day now with, a, okay, what am I going to do today? And I don't turn away from it. So I think that helped there. But I also think it was... It's probably why, even though I read the signs every day, do this work every day, that I'm still standing because it gave me a kind of toolbox. Like there is something about facing the despair and working through it that um, makes you stronger. And do you think now, 15 years on, do you feel like you're on one pathway or the other to a greater extent? Are you walking towards the picture of despair or walking closer towards the picture of joy and hope and thankfulness? I don't know. And what I have been trying to do is to hold on to and be comfortable in the space of not knowing. 
and for me, the way I've done that is to really meditate on how I don't know. So we tend to think that, you know, we look at the projections and we know if this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Anyone who says they have all the answers in the climate era, they're not honest because <laughs> we don't, no one has all the answers. And so I've actually been finding a lot of spite in the complexity of nature. Sometimes when all of it gets too big, I go microbial, <laughs> like really looking at the amazing things about nature that just blow you away. How is it that this creature can do that or that, you know, plant is dependent on this lichen and this, you know, uh, nature is amazing and it's so exquisite and beautiful and so unknowable. And that, and there's a piece around awe and joy and letting go into what we don't know that for me is really critical because it, it's the seed of hope. Maybe, I, maybe we don't know everything. And our job is just to, you know, continue to get up every morning, as Barbara Kingsolver says, and put on hope like a sweater and, <laughs> and think about what am I going to do today in order to create hope? I don't have less of a sense of urgency. I know that every ton of carbon we save from going into the atmosphere today will save lives. But I also am a bit of letting go into the idea that I, I don't know what the future is going to hold, but I know that I want to be my best self in the face of it. That's so beautiful. It reminded me of a quote that I love from Virginia Woolf where she wrote, the future is dark, which is the best thing the future can be, I think. Mm. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that Thank you'd you. like to share or call attention to? Well, we covered a lot of ground, Lily. Lot, That's yeah. a great conversation. <laughs> I mean, I guess I would like to say that while, while there is a small group of us that created this concept of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, we don't own it. And, and the reason it's taking off is because so many people around the world are saying, okay, I'm a Fossil Fuel Treaty campaigner. What can I do? So our small secretariat has created this resource hub, fossilfueltreaty.org, and anyone can go online and download a draft motion to your council or report or a press release. And really, a lot of people say, well, what can I do to help you? And I guess I'd like to leave you and people who are listening with the idea that, that you can just make it your own. That if we all start calling for something that is this ground shifting and start working on it in whatever capacity you have. Some people have five minutes after they pack the kids' lunches. Some people can work on this stuff full time. With whatever capacity you have, every action matters. And so don't don't wait for someone else to address climate change, whether it's the fossil fuel treaty or some other initiative or organization that you love what they're doing. We are more powerful together than we are apart. And I think every action matters. So I guess I would just encourage people to either join us at fossilfueltreaty.org or make the commitment to work on the issue and with the group of people that you believe in what they're doing and don't just sit at home listening to it decentralized action for decentralized solutions i like it <laughs> exactly exactly back to the grassroots <laughs> yeah yeah oh yeah, thank great. you so much for taking time i love it i'm super happy to share your work <laughs> with everyone because <laughs> i'm so impressed and i i just want to help see it grow fantastic thanks so much Thank you so much for listening to Who Cares Wins with me, Lily Cole. We are so grateful for the music that's been provided by the very wonderful musician, Cosmo Sheldrake. 
If you like this episode and would like other people to hear it, we'd be so grateful if you would rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts from. Catch you next time. Bye.